Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with me, Barrister Chris Patterson, where we will give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and future. Each episode features a new guest who will stimulate your interest in the law and will give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to have with me on this episode of the podcast, Professor Mark Hennigan law professor at the University of Auckland here in New Zealand. He's a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand and he's one of the few Australasian-based associate fellows of the International Academy of Family Lawyers. The International Academy of Family Lawyers is a global grouping of lawyers recognised as the most experienced and skilled family law specialists in their respective countries. Mark specialises in family law and has a particular interest in child's rights, relationship property, assisted human reproduction, domestic violence, child abuse, family court processes and international family law disputes. Mark has written extensively on family law matters. He's the co-author of Family Law Policy in New Zealand and the joint author of Family Law New Zealand now in its 17th edition. Mark is also the joint author of Relationship Property on Death, which won the 2005 JFR Northerly Prize for the best published law book by legal academics in New Zealand. He is a contributor to the text on mental capacity law in New Zealand. He's written the chapter on the text on mental capacity law on the child and capacity chapter. He's the sole author of Health Professionals and Trust, Cure for Healthcare Law and Policy and Care for Children, as well as the text Gene Society and the Future. He's written more than 150 articles and book chapters on family law published in family law journals and books around the world. He has influenced judges as far afield as British Columbia on the topic of child relocation. Mark's taught family law for over four decades. His first alma mater was the University of Otago, which he joined as a student in 1972 after arriving from Timaru, where shortly after graduating with an honours degree in law, he progressed to be appointed eventually the Dean of the Otago Law School in 2000. In 2018, he joined the University of Auckland's Law School, where he has continued his research and teaching as well as being the co-director of the university's PhD programme. Mark has had a lifelong interest in sport, particularly cricket and rugby, which he's continued to play up until 2018. Mark regards one of the greatest joys in life, uh, watching a movie, sitting in a dark picture theatre with an ice cream, a little bit of Coca-Cola and maybe some Jaffa's. He once had aspirations to join the Catholic priesthood. Law students, lawyers, judges and lawmakers have all been the beneficiary of Mark devoting his life to his working career and providing critical and informative insights into the law's role in shaping the rights and obligations of families here in New Zealand and beyond. Mark, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's lovely to see you, Chris, and you're one of my wonderful former students from Otago, and, and you lived in the same area as I did in Dunedin and Sinclair, so I feel I'm home. Well, look, that actually takes me back 31 years. I remember being a 17-year-old lifeguard and noticing you walking along the beach one day and I thought I'd go up and say hello to you because I was sure that I'd recognised you somewhere at a university open day. I just couldn't quite put my finger on (laughs) what it was that you were doing there, but I knew you were there and we got chatting on the beach and I think our discussion might have gone for a good 30 minutes. And by the end of it, for some reason, I was on my way to enrol in law school and here we are today. 
Great. 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 So thank you. That was one of life's fortuitous meetings. It was all of life yeah. is fortuitous meetings, I can yeah. assure you, uh, my uh, age, Chris. It's, it's all absolutely. serendipity. You talked about being one of your former students, and of course, uh, like all lawyers, I did go to law school. I went to Otago, <laughs> and, and you were there. You were one of the professors and taught, and I think it was with uh, Donna Buckingham, stage one, level one law, which was a prerequisite to get through actually into law school. But I wanted to talk to you about law school generally because, I mean, you've been a member of two law faculties now and combined in over 40 years. How do you see the role of law schools in a justice system? Well, I have a very clear view of of what law schools should do. I I think they have uh, one overriding primary obligation, and that is to make sure that we train uh, lawyers to be the best possible lawyers, both technically, so they, they're able to understand the law, interpret the law, and use the law to solve their clients' problems. But also ethically, in the sense that I've, I've always seen, and, and I think it's an important, it's a hard thing these days because the law profession has changed a bit, that they're entering into a profession, and, and it's a public service profession. Basically, lawyers serve the public. Now, there is a business aspect to it, but there's always a danger with law that it becomes more of a business than a profession and I think when that happens things change and I think that's uh, that's something the law society tries to deal with and I think I always inculcate to my students that you know we, we are there to serve the public and do the best possible job for them for for our clients and if, if every lawyer does that and you're not thinking about the the business aspect then I think clients get a good deal but once it becomes a business the emphasis is quite different. It's billable hours and all the things that, you know, that, that it's important to have an aspect of that. But if that becomes overriding, I think we lose the whole function of law, you know. And, and people need to trust their lawyers thoroughly. And sadly, when you do look at lists of most trusted people, nurses rightly, firefighters, and lots of others are above lawyers. And, and I think that's sad because I think we should be a, a trusted profession that people know that everyone will see a lawyer at some stage. I mean, whether it's basically uh, your house being sold or you're buying a house, or you will, you know, so we need to have a, a trusted profession. So I see that as the overriding function and, and the key function. And, and the second one I think that's really important is that when students are going through law, I think they have to realise that we're, as lawyers, um, we are stewards of the law in the sense that because we have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to get to know the law really well, we need to be able to point out areas of law where it's not working so well for disadvantaged people. You know, there's lots of areas of law, for example, which don't always quite quite work as well as they should. I mean, something was on TV last night, for example, I, I noticed where beneficiaries, if they go before the court, they end up losing their benefit, which is terrible suffering for children, you know, in that situation. So I think I think people studying the law and understanding the law and seeing how the law's working needs to see, look, this law's not really fair because there are lots of people who can't fight that way themselves because they don't understand it. They just, the impact hits them and it's too late. And so I think we, we have that responsibility. And the Law Society used to have law reform groups quite regularly. I mean, a lot of it's done by the Law Commission. They do a great job. But I think every law and everyone that studied law should see things that aren't quite working and say, we need to do something about that and, 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 and try and correct it because it, it really, the law never understands everyone. There's always peripheral groups who miss out, you know, who are always on the periphery. Those with the means <laughs> and those with, you know, there's, there's a wonderful article written by an American academic who said, why the haves always win in law. And that's, you know, that's not, shouldn't be the way. But if you've got the means and you can pay the money, you, you may be able to win. But the have-nots have a lot of interest as well, you know, and their interests tend to get left out. There's a whole area of social security law, which not a lot of lawyers specialise in. And, and it's as complex as tax law. <laughs> a lot of people are specialising in tax law who know the ins and outs and the details of all that stuff and they can do all they can to minimise the tax take on their particular client. 
But there's also a lot of beneficiaries who probably don't get what they're all entitled to. I think I think I read somewhere about six hundred billion dollars every year of unspent stuff that people would have been entitled to because they didn't. They just don't have access to it. It's not it's not accessible in the way it should be. And it's great that one of my colleagues at Auckland University set up a course on that this year, so students can kind of and we have equal justice projects for students to try and improve the law in a way that it works well for everyone. Because you won't have a just society, and you can't really have a justice system. It's only working for those who have the ability to use it for their ends, and it's not working for everyone. So it's really important to me that. We train really well-trained lawyers, but also we, we, we take stewardship and try to do the best we can for those who can't afford to do it for themselves. Okay, Mark, you've raised three really interesting issues, and look, I'd really like to pick up on sure. a couple of them. So this trusted profession, am I understanding you to be saying that it's important as part of lawyer training? Law students in particular are understanding that if they do choose a career in law, because not every law graduate becomes a lawyer, that they will be entering a profession, a trusted profession, and with that trusted profession comes obligations and duties as well as privileges. Am I hearing you to be saying that? Absolutely fundamental. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me the most important part, um, you know, I got my degrees, I didn't actually walk across the stage because I didn't see there was much point in that. But for me that moment when you take that oath when you're admitted to the as a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand, it's an important oath and that you are going to make sure that you will do all you can within the law to work for the best interests of your client. It's really important and it's really serious. And, you know, you take an oath. You actually take an oath. And, and I think that oath sticks with you for life. And that's the difference between a business and a profession. <laughs> you know, in a business, you don't have to take an oath. Your primary, and I'm not against businesses at all, your primary focus is to make as much profit as you can. That's the idea of a business. In a profession, you, you've taken an oath to do all you can within the law and, and make sure that you are using the law appropriately and not doing anything outside the law and acting in the best interests of, you, of your client. And those things are so important and, and they can get lost if the business ethic comes across the top of them. Do you think perhaps there's a pause point for lawyers who enter the profession accepting that this is a calling one of a, an obligation of service, service to clients, service to the community, service to the courts, that as time goes by perhaps that individual's motives and what they want out of life may change and do you think maybe that's a point in time that a professional or practitioner should probably pause and reflect on why it is that they're actually a member of the profession? Oh, I agree with that entirely. I mean, one of the things I think people don't realise is that when I went through, we were totally paid for by the government. So I can never turn people away. I do a lot of pro bono people for people. I don't take out a presence certificate. I haven't got the time to go to court, but I will certainly do whatever I can to help people who need some, some help. And I think even today when students pay a certain amount of fees, the government still gives them pretty good loans and a lot of it is supported by the taxpayer. We're here because the taxpayer have supported us through our degree. And 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 and, and we owe them a lot. You know, you, you can never really pay that back totally. So they need to reflect on the moment. It's, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about the society that supported you to do that, and you owe a lot back to that society. And that, that's the thing they should think about when you rightly said they should pause. You know, what, 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 this society's got me to where I am. And as you said, it's a privileged position. Lawyers can earn a good income and have a good life. You know, and, and, and choose the work they want to do. It's, it's really privileged compared with a lot of other things that people, but people with jobs that they probably hate have, have supported you into that position. So I think you have to reflect very strongly. It's not all about you. It's about what is society asking of you? It's not what's in it for me. When you start asking what's in it for you, I think you turn a corner which, which gets you into difficulties. If you say, what society want from me? And then you look at it quite differently. There is somewhat of a flip side though, would you agree, that to be able to serve the public, you do need to be able to run a good legal practice from a commercial point of view so sure. that you're in a position to 
pay the rent, sure. to pay your staff, <laughs> sure, practicing sure. fee, etc. You know, I understand yeah. that. I think that's always there, as I said at the beginning, but it's got to be the, the secondary thing. I mean, I think that people do have to you know, charge for their work because they have to, as you say, keep the firm going. They can't live off fresh air. I'm fortunate as an academic. I, I get paid by the government for my work, so I'm very, very lucky. So I can afford to do lots of pro bono stuff because I'm already getting a, a salary from, from doing it. But I think, and I think you're right, you need good organisation and you need firms to be very efficient, I think, because, you know, sometimes I do worry about the massive buildings and the costs that, that, that you know, that firms can have with if, 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 they're, if, they're, if they're renting, you know, many floors in a big flash building in the middle of, it's cost a fortune. And that fortune, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I think lawyers have to keep their, their costs down so that they can earn a decent income, not waste it on things that are, that are unnecessary, I suppose, in those circumstances. So it's a, it's a balancing thing. And I do think uh, you've got to be a good business. I agree with that totally. But your primary focus is always to, and I think the paradox of it is, and it's become part of the ethos, if you're doing your job and serving your public well, you'll always have clients because the word will get around. So you'll always have people coming in through the door. You know, it becomes obvious when you go to a professional who, who listens to what you have to say, understands your problem, gets back to you straight away. I mean, I've been involved in lots of surveys. Of the people that get back to you and check how you're going, give you good regular reports on what they're doing, those people are gold for people because people get anxious when they have to deal with a legal situation. So if you're doing a good job and really looking after your client, the business will look after itself in my view. I totally agree and that's a really good point. What I often hear though from particularly small suburban conveyancing practices is the real difficulty to be able to run a practice from a commercial point of view, given the amount that they're able to charge clients for a standard residential conveyancing. And what seems to be for a lot of small suburban practices, every year that goes by, there's more additional compliance costs. Like AML has been a major stressor for you know, small one-person, two-partner conveyancing practice. No, I, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, ironically, I think, and it's a point I really have strong views on, I find it really interesting that the conveyancer, who takes the biggest risk, because if the legal paper's not done well and they haven't checked the title and there's a, something running through it that no one knew about, you know, and, or a right of way that no one knew about it, it's, it's quite serious and you can be sued <laughs> for that. The real estate agents, all they do is open the key, show you around, and, and they get a percentage cut. I mean, years ago, the money used to primarily go to the look. You're taking the most risks. That lawyer's taking the most risk. They're going to check out all the things that they have to check out, all the compliances, make sure that there's no problems with it legally at all, and get it right. And yet the amount of money they get for it and the risk they take is very, very low. The real estate agent gets a 4% cut no matter what they do, and they take really no risk at all. I, I don't know how that flipped like that. I've never understood that. And I do think years ago, uh, lawyers used to get a reasonable cut from a house, and that sort of kept a firm going so they could do other work on the pro bono side. Because, it, you know, it, and it is a risky business. If you get a house transaction wrong, by God, it falls back on you rather badly. And yet they're only charging a few hundred dollars for some of this stuff. It, it, to me, is wrong. Uh, I, I don't know how that happened. And so I, I do feel for those small businesses because they have to do other stuff. You know, have to have, have some litigation or something else going. Whereas that work's so important because the most important thing for most people is the house. Oh, look, you're absolutely right, particularly if they're a young couple buying their first house. It's, it's everything for them, yep. you know, and, and you've got to make sure the loan's done right. There's a lot of things you've got to check out. And all the RMA stuff, there's so much stuff that you have to check out. And the title, it can be tricky. You know, the boundaries, all those things can blow up in your face because someone misaligned the boundary and you didn't pick it up. And then suddenly they say, this person's putting a fence right in the middle of my garden. What is, well, that's where their boundary goes to. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's massive, complex area of law. So I don't know why this actually happened. I think it's it's kind of wrong because it's an area of practice which affects everyone. It's an area of practice, and it's an area of practice which is probably the you know, less lucrative of any other area of practice. And it used to be the opposite. 
And I think I think we've missed the ball somewhere. I'm not against real estate agents, but I think they get far too much slice of the pie for the work they do. You know, you open a house, you have an auction, it's done. You know, it might be just a few hours involved, a bit of advertising perhaps, but, you know, and, and they don't even charge on an hourly rate. I mean, I don't like hourly rate charging generally, but they get a cut if the house is worth $5 million, 4% is quite a lot. Mark, I think you'd have a lot of conveyancing solicitors supporting. <laughs> I support um, them strongly because yeah, I think yeah. they do great work, and 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 it's and it's a side of the job which is so responsible. You know, you've got to get it right. If you don't settle at the right time, law firms get sued for a lot. I mean, I think I remember a case. I won't say where it was, but someone was meant to settle this thing by five o'clock. They were five minutes past. Cost the firm. $10 million or something because they didn't. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility in what seems like a simple transaction because time is of the essence sometimes. And you're five minutes late, and then people want to renege on the deal. They can do it, and then you suddenly bang, you know, and insurance, you haven't covered it with insurance. I just don't understand it myself. I, I really think it's, and it wheels society. Those transactions are what keeps society going because people are buying and selling things all the time. Your lawyers get a very small amount for doing that, and, and I think they do a very good job of it, but, and then they struggle, as you say, business-wise, which is not really fair because the responsibility should be rewarded. Look, I totally agree, and that's a really good point. Can we move on to the second point that you made earlier on, and this is the, the role of being stewards of the law. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your views on that. Well, I, I think it's really important. I think anyone that studies law in a law degree, and, and even practitioners, you see things that just aren't fair. You know, if you're in the criminal courts, we used to have examples where people could be cross-examined inappropriately about sexual offences, you know, bringing all sorts of irrelevant evidence about what other boyfriends have you had and various things like that, which, you know, criminal lawyers hated doing that, but the law allowed them to do it. And so I think it's part of the role of lawyers to say, look, this law isn't just isn't quite right. We need to do something about it. And I think the law society do do a pretty good job, actually, and lawyers generally, some lawyers take it, take it very seriously, put in submissions with any change of the law to say this is not going to work or it is going to work. It's really important because if you're practising in a field, you can see it very clearly every day. You know, think, this just this isn't right. Why is, why is it happening like this? It's just not right. Um, and so I think if we don't speak out and either work through the law society or work through our own submissions, I don't think we, the law's ever going to be as good as it can be because people only hit it once and they think that was unfair and they, and they move on. If lawyers don't kind of say... Look, our instincts tell us this is not right. And it'd be a bit like a medical practice. This is not working. Every time we give them this pill, they end up getting sicker. You know, we, sh- we should be picking that up. And if we don't, I, I think, and that would build more trust in the profession, I think, when, when we do that. And I think some of the submissions I've seen from the Law Society are really outstanding. They really pick up a lot of stuff that policymakers and bureaucrats may miss because they're, you know, you get experts in the field and they say, that's just not going to work. What about this? This is something that doesn't work, you know? And, 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 and the law has got to develop in that way. And, and, and I really think it's a big part of being a lawyer. So I always encourage students when they're doing assignments that, you know, to look at where areas where they think the law could be improved. You raise a really interesting point, and that is looking at areas where the law can be improved. One area, of course, is judge-made law. Now, judges don't always get things right, and it's often difficult for the legal practitioners who appear before them to be critical about perceived errors. I mean, we have an appellant system, but at some point, those appeal rights either come to an end or they practically can't be exercised. Where do you see the role of academics in law school in being able to express a view, a critical analysis on the way in which judges are making law and maybe even the legislature are making law? Oh, it's a big part of our job. I think it's a really important part and uh, it's one of the reasons I don't take out a practicing certificate, one of the reasons I I, I don't practice because I I, I want to be... uh, not uh, you know embarrassed when I meet a judge who, who totally disagrees with something I've said about a judgment or, or the way the law is, is working. I, I remember making 
quite a bit of criticism about uh, family court practice where they were granting warrants to remove children for contact, like at night. They come in at 7 o'clock at night, and I think newsroom got a hold of the story and filmed these kids in their pyjamas being ripped out, and it just looked terrible, you know. So I, I made comments. I think this is, this is just not on. I'm sure the judges could see the consequences of their ruling. I got quite a bit of flack from some of the judges for doing that, but I thought that's my job. I, I can't not do those sorts of things. I think it's really, really important. And and I do think judges do a vision. And, and, and initially, one of the well, we have changed that practice now. It's a bit like what happened with the baby uplift story. You know, suddenly we realise that courts are making orders that you can just lift babies up the minute they're born, and 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 then they did the story on it. It looked terrific, and so there's been a big inquiry, and now things are changing. So, because babies, and often the mothers in those cases are, are young. And they haven't got a lot of resources. And luckily, in the, in the case that got into the media, a lawyer who wasn't a family lawyer was horrified. How can this happen? And then it got into the media, and then the world has suddenly changed. You know, I was supporting that all the way. You know, the media person rang me and said, I'm 100% behind. You must get this out. And she's got quite a bit of flack for doing that. But the system has to be transparent. And, and if people see it for themselves, they go, wow, that, that's just not right. And, you know, Judges are human beings like you and I, and we get into practices we can't even see it ourselves. You know, we're all we're all suspect. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect, and, and judges aren't. Jud- judges do the best they can, but they get into practices which just become normalised. You know, why do you do that? You know, and someone said that that's horrendous. Look at the consequences. Wow, oh, we hadn't even seen that because it becomes part of in a profession. We talk to each other. We're going to see the impact we're having on society as well. It's easy to forget that because we're busy. You know, it's just the way it goes, and it's a constant reminder that we've got to be humble about we could be getting it awfully wrong. That's <laughs> Very good point. Let's talk about the law's objectives concerning relationship property now as we start to narrow into one of your specialist areas. So how do you see the objectives of relationship property, particularly on separation? Well, I see it very clearly. In fact, we had a great judge. He's died, the late Sir Owen Woodhouse. He saw this way back in 65 when the music was good and and life was uh, on the beach. It was a great time in the 60s. He saw this before any other judge. He was magnificent. He said whether it's marriage or relationship, it's a partnership of equals. And so when they break up, and they contribute in different ways, you know, we don't all contribute in the same way, because in his time, it was the so-called breadwinner who got everything, because, well, you made the money, so you, you, you take the money. You know, there's famous cases like Haldin and Haldin that had gone to the onto the Privy Council where, you know, a wife living on a farm, she got, and bringing up five kids and doing all the work, and the farm was only worth about 112000 but she only got a sixth of, of, of the value when she left. And yet she, you know, it was 20-odd year marriage and you know, all those sort of things. So he picked this up early on. She's made her contribution. She supported her husband and his work. She brought up his kids for him. and everything. She walks away with a sixth, virtually nothing. And that was happening quite... In fact, one of our famous judges, I won't mention the name, but said, what she did didn't count. He did the business, he gets the money. That, that's the way it was seen. And, and it's still an element of that has remained, sadly. You know? and, and I think that it's hard to get around what Sir Owen Woodhouse saw so clearly. And it's now in the legislation, but he saw it way back in '65 that it's a partnership and you contribute in different ways, so you share all the spoils. That means that the property spoils that have been acquired and the human capital. Because the biggest thing in an asset, one of the biggest assets in a relationship is not just the property you have, probably the house is a major one, but your ability to earn income. And if one party stays at home and does the hard yards, and anyone who wants to try staying at home with young kids is bloody tough. You know, it's the toughest job. Most important job, too. And their ability to earn income after a 15, 20-year marriage is miles behind someone who's been out there building their career. They've built their capital, human capital, and they go off with a salary of 100000 the other person's probably going to start on a benefit. That's just not, not fair. Half the house each is not going to make it, you know. I guess, Mark, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're drawing a distinction between what you could say is 
an accounting process of splitting an asset that would appear on a balance sheet, like the family home. I mean, the family home can be valued. There may be a mortgage sitting in there that can be taken into account to work out the net equity. And then the mathematical process can be undertaken compared to what the other point that you've made, and that is this income aspect. Now, that's a bit more of a problematic area to be able to work out what a fair split is, though. Do you see that as a problem area? No, no I, don't, I don't really, because I think, to give the other point of view, and there is another point of view to this, pe- people say, well, in a marriage, people have different skills, different strengths. So while the house and the hardcore property, the, the, the sort of uh, real property, can be divided, the fact that someone is earning an income is much more to do with their abilities than anything to do with the marriage. So they should be able to go off with their thing, and the other parties are going to make up the difference. So, so that's, that's the argument made for, for the other side. But if we go back to Woodhouse's position, it is a partnership. And the Act itself says contributions are equal and monetary contributions don't count anymore. So it is an exception to the normal kind of accounting way of seeing that it's what they call social legislation. It's not business legislation. It's not accounting legislation. It's social legislation saying you're a couple, so you share all the spoils. And we've always struggled with people who, who did the hard work at home and looked after children or sacrificed careers and various things and gave great support to their partner for that contribution to be recognised equally with someone who goes off and, and has a, a career which earns lots of money or, or earns more money than the other. We've always struggled to recognise, but this is part of why they are able to do that. And as one judge said, you know, you can only do that because you've been freed up to do that. You don't have to be home looking after children. People say, oh, but I could have got in a housekeeper and I could have got in a childcare and all those. What, what a hell of a life for the children, you know, that they have their uh, the other parent at home and it generally has been women not always the world's changing a little bit so i think that people struggle to see that as being equal in that respect because they think the hard yards are being out the way i i don't think anyone and i did a, did a talk about this uh, 50th jubilee of the court of appeal i dressed up two of the court of appeal judges in women's clothing with a vacuum cleaner and something else and everyone roared laughing but working at home with children i have grandchildren and i've got i mean they're lovely to be with but god it's hard work it's tough. Yeah, I've got two teenage boys. I'm still <laughs> traumatised by those earlier years. In fact, I'm probably more traumatised now by the later years well, as they're getting older. It's it is tough. It's, a, it's, it's the hardest thing uh, I think one human being will ever do is raising another human being. And it's also the most important. Absolutely. I mean, if, if people, it's ironic that people having children gets no economic recognition. I mean, Marilyn Waring wrote a good book, Counting for Nothing. It's a wonderful book that, you know, Having a baby and bring up a child has no economic value in the workforce. But if people stop doing it, we don't have a workforce. We don't have any future. There's no one to look after us when we get old. It's, it's, it's the most important thing, and yet it's the least recognised economically. And, you know, legislation is trying to sort of look at it from the point of view. It is important, and it counts equally with people working in the workforce and, and making, and in my view, it should even count more than equally. Well, I guess this marks a real change in the way in which Western society has evolved or developed because prior to the Industrial Revolution in smaller villages, the members of that village had a vested interest in raising well-balanced, strong and healthy young people. Absolutely. It took a village to raise them. It was fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. for those exact reasons and that it's those young people who will be the ones that will be gathering the food and protecting the village. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, it was the same for us. I mean, where does superannuation come from? It doesn't come from people who are retired, it comes from people who are working and contributing and so that's where it goes. Yeah. So you talk on one end of the equation is that contribution towards providing taxes etc but there's also the more negative flip side and that is that if you don't have well balanced young people 
and they're set on the wrong path, they can end up being quite an expensive cost to a society. Massive cost. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I've done a lot of work in the youth justice area and in research and people don't estimate. I mean, if the first five years are not done properly, and you look at the longitudinal study done through Otago University, what's called the famous Dunedin study, and there's the Christchurch study as well. All the evidence in every longitudinal study shows you get it right early on and things tend to look after themselves. You get it wrong early on and it's just cost after cost after cost, health, mental health, inability to develop your brain, all the things that really matter. And we pay for it many, many times over. These things don't happen just out of the blue. They happen because we didn't get it right at the beginning and we don't give it enough emphasis. I mean, we pay preschool people lower than anyone else. Yeah, that's the most important time. When people go to preschool, that's the most important time. My little granddaughter just graduated from preschool a few weeks ago. and I went to those ones and I said, thank you very much. It's incredible the work you do. You're with little kids all day and stimulating them, keeping them going so parents can go to work. It's, it's incredible what they do, and yet we reward them. I'm a university professor. All the work's been done. I could go with you and sing Hallelujah, yeah. you guys, and still do well. You know, <laughs> It doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, I like to pretend it matters a little bit, but nowhere near as much as what those people do. So society's all around the wrong way, really, it is. They're all really good points. Now, I want to go back to the division of relationship property on separation, and we were talking before about this issue of disparity of income and, and yep. lifestyle. How does the law reconcile that? Because my understanding is under our Property Relationships Act here in New Zealand, it's very much a rules-based piece of legislation so that a judge can go, here's the rule, here are the facts, I apply the facts to the rule, I get a particular outcome. But it seems that the section that deals with disparity of income and lifestyle that section 15 seems to stand out somewhat from that rules-based approach. It gives a discretion to grant some compensation, whether that's a lump sum payment or some transfer of property. Yes, I think that that is one of the the disadvantages of the way the section is currently drafted and many judges complained about it. As you say, I mean, 50-50 is pretty clear. There's a few exceptions, but it's meant to be a rule-based entitlement situation. But the disparity provision was put in with good intentions that basically... 50-50 is not going to be fair if one person walks away with a $100,000 income and the other person's, you know, on a benefit. And so that the difference for the next few years in terms of their ability to get on with their lives is going to be quite different. They're not on equal paths at that particular point in time. So it's put in with good intentions, but it's been interpreted very narrowly by the courts for the reasons I said earlier, because courts don't like to recognise disparity. They don't like to recognise that one person should get more than 50%. And so what has really happened, and the Law Commission found that on average, I mean, a lot of cases, about 40% of the cases, no, some people get nothing. When they do get something, on average, it's only about 7% more, which is not max. The average amount um, they found on looking over 100 cases was about $96,000, which is a little bit more, but not a lot more. And that's really very, very sad. So the Supreme Court's tried to put a bit of a formula in there to make it a bit more formulaic, which has helped. And the Law Commission has definitely taken the view, and I was involved with this process with the Law Commission, that for the very point you made, Chris, that the discretion hasn't worked. It's just not working. So they want to use a formulaic approach, which is we, we've used in child support. A formulaic approach is always have some unfairnesses around the edges, but at least you can predict what you're going to get and you get on with it and there's it, not too much room to argue over it, thank God. Disparity cases, people don't even want to waste their money arguing over it. They may not get much. So, so it, it's got to be undermined by the fact that there's not really a willingness to, to do too much in that area. So they've tried to do what they've done in Canada, which is to say, let's use a formula approach to this so that people kind of can work out what's going to happen. There was a little bit of a formula approach by Justice Arnold in that case you mentioned, Scott and Williams, but nothing's happened. It's sit on the table since 2019, so it's still just sort of sitting there. 
Do you see it as an advantage of at least putting a formulaic approach in and that being predictability so that the parties and the legal advisors in particular can say, well, here's a set of facts because no two cases are identical often, but if we apply this formula, we can see what the outcome should theoretically be, which may avoid having costly fights about it in the family court or beyond. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the principles of the Property Relationships Act, unbelievably, is to have do everything quickly and inexpensively yeah. <laughs> and speedily. But it's the last thing that happens when these cases get involved. So what they've suggested is what's called a family income sharing arrangement. So what they would do, say you and I were a couple mm. and you were earning 100000 and I'm earning, earning 50000 so between the two of us, it's really 75000 So you'd have to top me up so we're sharing it equally for up to about five years, depending on how long the relationship's been. So that would get me into that new situation. So it's reasonably simple. There are some ways out. If it was manifestly unjust for that to happen, that can happen. And there are only certain ways in. If you've had a child, then you automatically can do the income sharing. Ten-year marriage, you can automatically do it. Or if you've given up your income capacity to, to stay home and look after the kids or you've supported the other person in doing extra education. So there's quite a wee, few ways into it. Once you're into it, then the formula applies apart from manifestly unjust when it shouldn't apply. So it does give predictions. So you look at, predict what the salary will be over the next 12 months and then away you go with that and you say, that's what you have to share. So you'd have to be giving me $25,000 a year for married for say 10 years for, for up to five years. That would give couples, you know, partners, an indication as to what they might be up for on a separation and they can be advised accordingly and avoid you know, what could be a, a long protracted battle on what is sometimes just a number that's pulled out of yeah. an ear. Going back to the, the Scott and Williams case, no, I don't think anyone other than the parties themselves, and rightly so, would know what the actual amount of money spent on it was, but we, we do know that the <laughs> Supreme Court ordered that there be costs paid in excess of well, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know, I know. And, and yet, well, that case is a classic example of what you said before, Chris. In the family court, the disparity award, because it was $8.5 million worth of property, and so the judge, I think, did a very good, Judge McCarty, did a very good thing. First of all, one of the problems with the discretion is it created a whole lot of work for accountants to come in and value what the disparity should be worth. And that cost a lot of money too. I mean, I know I was doing some work in some of these cases, and in one case, which I won't mention the name of, um, I did my bit for free, but the cost that was put forward to the court when the party won the case for the lawyer's cost and the expert's cost was $500,000. That's a lot of money. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, ridiculous. Be- it's beyond the comprehension of the average New Zealander it's to a- spend half a million dollars Absolutely. of tax-paid money. It's ridiculous. On professional fees to oh, sort out uh, a relationship property it's ridiculous. Dispute. So we've got to take the experts. We don't need that expertise. And funnily enough, they had the expertise in the Scott and Williams case, and they worked it all out. And I'd written an article saying we're going to get rid of the experts. It's costing far too much. And I said, why don't we just do it on a 5%, 10%, 15%, depending on the degree of disparity, just do a rough, you know. And the judge did the 10% one and came out with exactly the same amount, 850000 which cost nothing. But then it went to the high court. High court judge exercised discretion, totally different, came out with the formula, came out with the view that it should only be 280000 Went to the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal said, no, it should be 470000 Went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said should be five hundred and twenty thousand. Now, that's a lot of variety. 
for the same section being applied from 280,000 up to 850,000 with 470 and 520 in the middle. I mean, you can't advise anyone in that. And then when you get the costs, probably the costs probably outweighed the uh, amount of extra that you got from the disparity. So it is a mess, basically, in that respect. It's costing far too much for far too little. And a formula, at least in that case, you can work it out. Now, people are still game, and that's a terrible thing. People try and lower their income and all sorts of things. So we've got to, we've got to find ways to make sure it works because the difficulty is people look ahead and they plan other ways. I mean, one of the other bugbears of the relationship property is people have used trust to avoid having to having to um, share it. You know, and, and the courts have found some ways around it, but still it's, it costs a fortune to dig into a trust to try and get something back from it because what would otherwise be a relationship property sits in a trust and it's not easy to get that, that out. Well, the minute you start getting trusts involved, you're actually starting to join more parties to effectively to the litigation and that adds extra costs. Just sticking on the... Scott and Williams, yeah. Scott and Williams in particular. So just sticking to this issue of disparity of earnings and, and how that could be compensated on, on, on the separation. It sounds to me that a formulaic approach is probably going to achieve the purpose of a fair, equitable division in most traditionally arranged relationships. Yes, yes, yes. And of course, there's always going to be exceptions, but one obvious exception is is that is when you get into partnerships that are second or even third time round, where the parties are coming into it from having been in a subsequent relationship, and they're often their careers are already well established. So how does one look at... Well, it might working? not fit the formula. I mean, if they had a child, it would it'd fit in if they stay for more than 10 years, and, and there may not be a disparity when they've both got got those sorts of things but they still they're not they're not excluded in those situations but if they bought a lot of separate property and that can make a difference too because they can they've got plenty to get on with so, so so they're able to do that that was one of the exceptions they talked about in scott and williams but if they have a child even if it's a third relationship then they come across the threshold and then it's a matter of, of, of what is the disparity in their income so it would still come into it and one of the good things about it may be a bit of a disincentive because you know, one of the things i think we've forgotten a lot um, and it started in the 60s People think if they're not happy in a relationship now, surely, I mean, if it's a violent relationship, absolutely. But no relationship is ever going to be perfect. No relationship is going to have that first romantic blush for more than a couple of years if you're lucky. And I don't think we put enough. We've even taken it out of the law of trying to encourage people because, you know, children love generally love both their parents no matter what, and they really want them to, to be around, you know. And I think we've made it a bit... People just think they can move on and some financial disincentive, <laughs> you know, stop and think about this. And I think the thing that made me realise what it's about, people think love is something you feel. So you wake up, I don't feel I'm in love with you anymore. Dear. Sorry, I just don't feel that feeling. And of course, someone you always feel you're in love with them. Love is a verb. It's something you decide to do. It's not, it's not something you feel. That, that's just oxytocin running through your body and it'll go away. <laughs> and the thing is that people choosing and I don't think we put enough into training people to, to think about how do you get through those periods where it's tough where you've got young children you're both working doing th- the pressure goes on where you hardly see each other you know and you have differences and all that we, we need to do a lot more of that because I think a lot of people could get through a marriage and a relationship and continue in it violence absolutely and, and abusive behavior but apart from that I think people just think I'm just not happy you know and <laughs> it's again I don't think You've got to put the effort in. It's an effort thing, and you've got to do it every day. You've got to think, I am choosing today to love this person. But if you don't do that, it, it, it will disappear. Do you think possibly there might be an English romantic poet from the 14th century who might be responsible for creating this conflated idea of lust and companionship and calling it love? <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I do think people don't see it that way. I mean, it, it really is... 
you know, it's, it's quite different from that. And as I've got older, I really appreciate, I think, I think if people could look back on their life, I think there's that, the hardest part, obviously, is 30s and 40s when kids are coming on and lots of things are happening and probably too many temptations around for people and other, other distractions and things. But you get old enough, and those things don't matter so much, and, and you really do treasure it at that stage, but you can't see that when you're in the 30s and 40s. Also, the, the point you make about that initial period of time, now there is actually research to support this, to say there is this concept of the honeymoon hormone, and that course, is that we are wired to actually see very much rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, for up to two years. I know, I know, the, I know, the, yeah. I know. but we, we don't have a lot of training of how to deal with that when that kind of starts to disappear. And people sometimes, they talk about the seven-year itch, they'll get to five, six, seven years, and it's when kids are young and, and they're thinking, this isn't quite as exciting as I thought it was going to, <laughs> it was going to be. I, I, really, you know, I, re- I really think that... People need to know the reality that you you will be paying quite a bit. You've invested that family. You've invested in that family. You can't just walk away and just do what you like and take it. T- Wouldn't it take all like the, like the ever song? I mean, basically, you have to realise that this family is invested in you, and you've invested in them. And so there's going to be a, you know a, a, an economic price to pay, which you have to consider, plus the emotional price to pay for your children and everyone else. I think it's good to have those realities on the table so people see what what they, and they might you might revise. It's a bit like when people get diagnosed with cancer; they see their life quite differently. You know, it's not a freebie. Nothing's a freebie in life. I do recall client will remain nameless who, when I went through what the costs of a separation, <laughs> decided that uh, he'd carry on boxing on with the relationship. Look, of course, in New Zealand we have um, <laughs> <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, L- literally, yeah, excuse the pun, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Look, of course, in New Zealand we have a no-fault divorce regime, but we do have this somewhat different of a contrast to the United States, where you have a two-year calling down period from separation till you can divorce. We're the same. We've got a two-year cooling down. Yeah, I don't think they have that in the US, I think. Well, some states have it. I mean, they have instant divorce, which I think is a bit silly. I think the two-year period is quite sensible. I mean, it's hard on people who are in abusive relationships because they want to get out of them fairly, fairly quickly in that situation. So so I think think having a clear formula so people can kind of know this is what... and, And hopefully... It will cut down on some litigation. There'll always be people who fight. It's manifestly unjust. I can't afford to, you know, someone will move in with someone else got children, and I, I can't afford to pay $25,000 extra to my previous partner. I've got all these people. You know, there, there will be arguments over that for a start because people often take on other obligations. It's what happened with the Child Support Act when it came with the formula. People would say, oh, I can't afford to pay that. I've got all these other obligations. You know, I'm taking on, you know, and the courts were quite tough on that. So I, there will be a testing period to see whether people can kind of undo themselves from the formula because manifestly unjust is, it does create another discretion, unfortunately. That's <laughs> so away we go again. And, you know, lawyers, that's where the lawyer will happen. Well, there's that other threshold point. It's been referred to in the case law, the authorities as being that causative yes. criteria of due to the division of functions between the relationship. But sometimes often the disparity has been caused due to decisions that the individual partners actually made long before the partnership formed. Do you have a view that when two partners come together, that those earlier decisions, for example, if you have a woman who's decided to pursue a career in medicine, becomes a specialist thoracic surgeon, and let's say that her partner decided to pursue a career in being a truck driver. Are these factors that really lead to a fair requirement there should be a compensation at the end of the relationship when those decisions were made before the relationship even began? Now that, that's a very good point. And that, that was argued in some of the earlier cases. People make their choices and they should be stuck with their choices. Well, the Supreme Court have really, I mean, even though the, the Act says cause, the Supreme Court have said, the majority have said, 
we're not going to look at cause. We're just going to look at disparity. And if it's disparity, we're going to make it. We're going to have a formula to, to make out the difference. And I think the reason they gave for it was was quite a good one because once you get into those arguments, Chris, you know that you made the choice. No, you didn't make the choice, or you accepted it. You know, you argue over what was the cause, and it would be endless litigation on that. You know, I'm doing better because I just sh- chose to do that, and you chose to do this, and I, my, mine's more valuable than yours. And it's not very seemly to have courts. And so they said, and something English courts have said the same thing. Let's just look at the difference. It's meant to be a partnership of equals. So you come out equally economically, <laughs> no matter what. You know, just like in any partnership, some people do more than others, but if it's an equal partnership, then that's what it's all about. So I think if, if you go back to Woodhouse's thing, we contribute in different ways. The truck driver's still there with the kids being a father and doing all that sort of stuff. And so part, part of the bounty is the house we have and that income that we've both been able to earn doing our jobs. We might have different abilities. Otherwise, you get back, I'm more skilled than you. I've got more ability than you. And, and it's unseemly when it's meant to be a partnership. Yeah, it's really interesting. Not only is the law proposed to be reformed around the issue of disparity of earnings, but there are other reforms that the law is wanting to look at, because we've got to bear in mind that the, you know, this legislation's been in place was it for 45-odd years. 1976, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was still a student then. It's going back a while, <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a few years. So one of the other areas that the Law Commission have made some recommendations on is how the family home is to be shared. Yeah. And it's suggested that if it was owned by a partner before the relationship or it was inherited somehow through gifts, that really the focus of the relationship property would be on the increase in the value of the property. How, how do you see that working? I can see that. The, the courts have already looked at that because, you know, you talked before about second in relationships and people can go in in their 40s and one person's got a, has acquired through themselves personally um, assets of, you know, like a $5 million home, for example, and under the current legislation, once you've lived together for more than three years, the other person's automatically entitled to 50%, full stop. And that's always been the case since 1976. The home's always been, been fundamental. So some people say, well, that home's not really the fruit of the relationship. That home was brought in by, by, by someone else. And so we should... We should and w- w- I was involved with the law committee. We did a survey of the public, and this was one of the strongest things. I think about 60% of people thought it was unfair. So that's why they brought that sort of criteria and that, that maybe we shouldn't do it. And some of the more recent cases, even the courts have looked at it, where in a relationship where one party's brought more of it in and they, they've called it extraordinary circumstances, which is a bit unusual because in the early days they wouldn't let anything be extraordinary circumstances. Saying, well, this person brought a lot more into the relationship. It's only been going for just over three years. Not fair to share 50-50 because that's always been an exception. But extraordinary circumstances used to be a high barrier. They lowered the barrier a bit because they also felt some sympathy for those sort of situations. So so that that is, that is a proposal. But at the moment, it's it's you know once you move in, that's why so many people put their homes in trust beforehand. So you know if, if they do it in the relationship, it, it'll, it'll be caught because it's, it's put in the trust. But if they do it well beforehand, then it's, it's outside the relationship. You know, it's owned by the trust, and so they're not going to be hit. But some some do get hit. But these days, a lot of people do put it into trust. You raise the issue of trust. One of the other recommendations that the law commission's made is giving the courts greater power to divide trust property. Is that not just going to simply lead to more litigation? Yeah, but I'm 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 all for it. I I, I my personal view is I think trusts are a way of avoiding obligations. I mean, look at the history of trust. They're originally set up to one of the obligations. One of the uh, earlier purposes of trust was that women couldn't own property in their own right. A married woman had no rights to property. So trusts were used by equity as a way of giving her some access to income. We've now gone the full circle where people use trusts to you know, tie things up in property. I mean, the, the, the big case that went to the Supreme Court, Clayton and Clayton, Mr. Mr. Clayton, uh, when he, when he um, uh, got married, he set up an, uh, a contracting out agreement saying, 
if you stay for three years, you'll get 10,000 for the first year, 10,000 for the second, and if you stay for three years, you'll get 30,000, that'll be it. Well, they stayed together for, for about 20 years, and he was worth about 24 plus million at the end of it and said, here's your 30,000, good luck. <laughs> but in the meanwhile, he'd got advice while he was building up his business to say, you need to put some stuff in trust because, you know, if anything goes goes awry, you'll, you'll lose that. And uh, and that's what he did, of course. And then she had to fight right through the courts for years to, 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 to actually get access to it. And uh, he actually set it up in such a trust that he had total control over it. I mean, trust is meant to be arm's length, but trust had become a bit of a joke in that respect that, you know, it's people still see it as their property. So he was a sole settler of the trust. He had total control over who the beneficiaries were. We could get rid of them at any time. He could do anything like with the trust. So the court said, you have so much power over this trust, effectively it's your property. And so it had to be divided. But there was a lot of litigation to get, to go through that process. And, and it was just purposely done to avoid him having to pay out 50% of the property they'd acquired during the relationship. And so that's what tends to happen. Now, uh, while the Law Commission done a good job opening it up a bit, it's still left at this one key thing, which we saw before, saying that they can enter into the trust, but if it would be unjust, and I can see the litigation flying and, and all the trust lawyers and they'll be going and flat out, it's unjust, it's unjust, it's, it affects under the beneficiaries. And my view is we've got to decide where the priorities are. You know, is your priority the social legislation to give people an equal fair share of relationship property or is your priority about protecting trusts? And for too long, we've protected trusts over the social legislation. So it's, it's a matter of choice as we do that. And the Law Commission's gone kind of halfway, <laughs> but not quite so far in, in doing that. So I can see the lawyer's going to have a field day uh, on that one. Hopefully, if it gets to the stage where legislation's drafted to either amend, yeah. the, amend the current legislation or introduce a whole new piece of legislation, that they might find a way around to try and avoid that from happening because it is really a goal is that if you can have good, clear rules... Absolutely. They can avoid arguments and the ongoing uh, cost. There's always that compromise because when yeah. they get submissions, they, they want to compromise. But on the whole, look, I think the Law Commission uh, done an absolutely fantastic job. You know, they did surveys, they did a really good job. And, you know, politics is always about compromise. You never get the perfect, um, perfect arts. You're trying to satisfy different interests. And there is a very strong interest amongst trust law. I mean, law firms thrive on trusts, and, and, and trusts are seen as a sort of central piece to the whole thing. So there's been a strong lobby to, to not let it, it total open sesame on trust, which I'd like to have seen. And, and so this is the compromise and, and there'll be strong litigation to kind of keep that door uh, not as open as perhaps one would have wished. That's just the compromise that happens in a society when you've got strong interests and, and, and people pushing for that particular point of view, especially those who want to protect their property. Yeah, well, probably a more important interest group than, uh, than trust lawyers is actually children themselves. I couldn't and, agree more. And the, the Law Commission have suggested that placing a greater emphasis or priority on the best interests of children in relationship property division. How do you see those recommendations possibly playing out? It's been there for a long time. Section 26 has given power to the courts for a long time to say that they should you know, property can be vested in children. And, and I don't know, I mean, it, it, the trouble is there's, there's no mechanism, and they've suggested a mechanism for anyone to be representing the children um, and that from that point of view. And and, and therefore, no, the argument's never put forward. <laughs> and so even though there's provision there and, and they've given a bit of a mechanism for perhaps a lawyer to appear and, and put the argument that you know, we can't agree on this, let's just give it to the children would, would be one way of, uh, of solving it. The assumption at the moment is if, if a partner gets a decent share of property, the children will benefit from it. And, and I've been involved in helping people where often the, the, the deciding point and it's a really good one to watch. Uh, I remember one thing, I was involved helping someone in a, in a mediation and they were, they were about... 300,000, 400,000 out in terms of what one party wanted to pay and the other party. But then over lunch, I said to the, one of the parties, w- 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 what do you want this amount for? 
I just want to have the same value home as the other partner. In other words, when the children come between us, I want to make sure that they're... And the other partner, when he, when the other partner heard this, automatically gave more money straight away because wanted to do the right thing for the children. So it can work if people focus on it. Why are we fighting over this? If, if you're going to live in a, in, in a, in a, with not much resources in a poor home, the kids are going to spend time in that home. And they go, that's not good for them. So be generous. I, I tell everyone... If you've got, be generous because it benefits your children. You want both of you to have a, children live in good homes, you know, and, and get away from that petty stuff of I want a bit more just for myself. It's the children that, that lose out when that happens. Absolutely, absolutely right, and, and really good points. So one of the the last uh, recommendations made by the Law Commission is around the way in which relationship property matters are resolved and practiced, just to try and deal with the problems of delay and cost. God, you've you've hit. I mean, I I just cannot believe it. I I've got got people that I help out and one of them upon uh, a pro bono one of them spent two million dollars on costs just over 10 years trying to get access because when people have got a lot of trusts and a lot of companies it takes years to discover what the hell's even in in the pot and it's just to me ridiculous I, I had a, a former colleague who worked in, in fraud office and he said in New York you get six weeks to declare it all and if you don't you lose it yeah. <laughs> if they find it yeah. in, in England but like here, it's done by discovery. It can take years. There's no, there's no, there's no nothing to help. They said we should up the cost, but we don't do a lot in that respect. So, playing that long game means that the other party runs out of legal fee. Legal can't afford it anymore, and so people win by by us by, by attrition, attrition. You know, wearing them wearing which, them down, which, which is yeah. wrong. You know, it should be. You know what property you got. You put it all on the tables in a period of time, or you lose it. You know, I just think. That's the only way we're going to make some some ground in this respect, you know, because then then you can make a fair decision as to how how it should be divided, you know, which is relationship property, which is you, you, you know it all. How can you go into a fair decision when you just don't know what's there and it's taking you so long to find it? It's been a real problem in our legal system for for, for too long. It drives up costs and it just costs an absolute bloody fortune. And I think we're going to have the strongest. Just saying, you'll pay a bit of extra cost. That's nothing to people when they know they can hide stuff away and and. and 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 and, uh, and and no one knows where it is, or it's in a company, or and some of them have like hundred companies and seventy five trusts. It takes to find it all out. Is it? It should all have to be done, you know. I mean, the courts sometimes do, but the parties have to pay for that, and people can't afford it. It's under Section Thirty Eight of the Act, you can get a forensic accountant in to do all that, but that can take a lot of money, and the parties have to pay for that. So some people haven't got the money to do that. So it should be required of the party who knows. People know what they have. Another party doesn't know. It's just not fair. How can you play a game or, or do a fair settlement when the other party's just got stuff hidden away from you? Well, the fairness isn't just in relation to the extra cost that all this is, but there's also the delay factor because uh, for, for many people, the most stressful dispute they'll ever be involved in is a family dispute. I know. Well, I've, I've got several people I help for about 10, 12 years just trying to find out trying to find out where assets are and it's cost them a fortune and that's why they run out of money. That's why I help them, they're acting for themselves, which is hard because one of them's particularly good at doing it, but most of them struggle, you know. It's, it's just every time they have to go to court and dig in, it takes time and, and, and money. Well, <laughs> so people end up settling for a lot less and, and that doesn't seem fair. Well, it's also the emotional toll as well. That, oh, that terrible. can be a terrible effect on mental health. And, and, and the economic loss at the time because they're struggling, you know, their expectations. So you know, the, 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 the purpose of the Act, one of the key purposes, speedily, not costly. And, and, and when cases go wrong, it's slow and deeply costly. I mean, $2 million 
Well, it sounds to me that those objectives have been completely lost. They are lost. Now, the government has attempted to take some steps to address some of these issues, and there is a bill that's floating around called the Family Court Supporting Families in Court Legislation Bill. Terrible yeah. wording, isn't it? It is <laughs> terrible wording. Totally unmemorable, isn't have it? You had a, have you had a look at the bill? I have had a look at it. One you, of my students is doing a paper on it for his postgrad mm. course, yeah. Well, it seems to me that with the bill, what they're looking at doing is creating a, a family justice liaison officer to give better information to families and increase some legal aid and maybe even some remuneration for lawyers for well, the child. Well, I agree with that because I think lawyers yeah. for the child, and most of them, it's, it's, it's a public service, which I really applaud them for, and legal aid's been low for years. It hasn't increased for years here. Yeah. This restoration of a right to legal representation, have you got any views on that? The laws changed because at one point in time they took away the right for parties in certain family law disputes to even have a lawyer present. Yeah, and, and child disputes, um, unless it was an urgent case uh, and, and a, a case without notice, uh, you had to do it yourself. All that did <laughs> was increase the number of urgent... They went up 87%, so every case became urgent. And they weren't all urgent because when you had an urgent case, you were allowed to have a lawyer. And so the first thing... <laughs> The lawyer would say, well, I can't act for you. I can give you some legal advice for about four hours, and that's about it, and you're on your own. Good luck. Mm-hmm. And uh, But if we make this matter urgent, <laughs> I can help you. God, for God's sake, make it urgent. I want some help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mad. I, a bit like going into hospital for an operation. They say, look, it's not a very serious one. You can do it yourself. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want a surgeon, we have to up, up the, you know, it, it's, it's just ridiculous. Oh, I mean, great analogy. And, 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 and it, was, uh, it was done just to save costs, and, and it was never going to going to work. I mean... As you said before, Chris, it's, it's, it's a very difficult period, anyone going anywhere near, near a court. I may well have studied family law for 42 years, but if mm. I was in a family dispute, I would never represent myself, even no. though I've been teaching it, no. writing books yeah. on it for years. I wouldn't do it because your judgment is just not there. Mm. And I feel sorry for the Lincolnson person. They struggle. You know, It's really hard work for them. And uh, it's just not the way to solve disputes. Good lawyers can get onto it quickly, negotiate it, and come out with a, with a good arrangement. I mean, you shouldn't have to... In many cases don't go near court, thank God, and, and, and you get two good lawyers who, who know the law well and act ethically. You can sort it out pretty quickly and get on with it. That's the way the system should be. I understand you'll have a better knowledge than me on this. In Australia, shortly after proceedings or an application's filed in the Australian Family Court, the Family Court directs the parties off to almost prompt triage mediation to see if they can get the parties around a table and try and nut out a a sensible, fair, early solution to avoid years of combat in the court system. Well, well we, we, we did put that in place. We put in the family dispute resolution process. We privatised it. And I'll talk about the other system shortly with you, but we privatised it so there's three agencies running it. Parties are meant to contribute about $400 plus each, or if they can't afford that, nothing. But what's happened is, and, and it was predicted by Judith Collins, it would be 7000 a year. Uh, the numbers going through are about 2000 a year, very low, and the number of court applications have gone up because people want to get a lawyer and, 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 and do it that way. So it, it, it hasn't quite worked. I, I, I agree with you. It's great to have media. What we had under the old system, which worked very, very well, we had a, a, what was called a counselling coordinator. They were all um, very, pretty much all females. They were very experienced. They've done a lot of counselling. So when a case came to court, particularly over children, the judge would generally direct them to go to see this person see this person, the person would spend time with each party, work out where they're at, then they'd get state paid up to six, six and then sometimes up to 12 sessions to kind of get things right, and then when they when they were in the right frame of mind, having worked with all the emotional things and had some, you know, sort of counselling mediation it really was, they could then go to a mediation session with the judge and, and, and their lawyer present so they felt secure, and then bang, 
it was often resolved in that dispute, didn't go any further. People didn't like the idea of judges mediating, but funny enough, I, I, one of my students years ago did a study, a lot of people did like the idea, because at the end of the day, they're trying to find their way there, and if a judge says, look, what about this? And they go, oh, the judge thinks that's, well, we'll, 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 that might work for us. And, and many of them, it worked quite, quite well. The danger with going straight into mediation, if you haven't had any kind of getting through the emotional stages, is you're not really ready, and they weren't allowed to have their lawyers with them. And the legislation said didn't say they couldn't, but that's the general approach to it. So you're kind of in a vacuum, you know. I mean, you don't quite know what the what the boundaries are and, and what you're doing, because I think mediation, when it works, works really, really well. But you've got to get parties in the right state of mind before they go in, and that's an art in itself. If they're still, and often in a breakup, one, it's a shock to one party who's grieving, and the other parties, you know, and, and they're at different stages, and it's hard to get people on the same page. You go through, people go through anger and grief and resentment, and then feel powerless for a while and eventually come out of that. And so you need some intermediate process to kind of get the emotional stuff clarified, get them focused on the right uh, right thing, which is doing the right thing for their children and realising they're going to be parents for the rest of their life for those children and then they can things can work through. But it's getting to the depth of that. And the most important thing, actually, in mediation, it's not just getting an outcome, it's really training people to how to communicate with each other and they're no longer together. They broke up because they can't communicate very well. And then we expect them to communicate brilliantly and come out with a solution. I mean, well, it, particularly if they're going to become co-parents. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's what yeah. most of the mediation is for. It's for parenting. I mean, relationship property cases go to mediation. They go to private mediation, and they, and they normally resolve pretty quickly. Mm. Not many applications go to court for relationship property. Funnily enough, most of them are solved by mediation by private private mediators. A third of the court applications are over children. So the, the property stuff is generally worked out because even though there's some room to move, people can normally settle that with lawyers and maybe need a mediation to, to just knock it on the head and get it through. And some go to what's called arbitration because it's quicker than going to the court where it's like a court decision and they, and they accept that. But So that, that's not so bad. But with children, the, once the pressure points start and the anger starts and the differences start, it, it, it's hard to stop. And once you get into litigation, the sad part of it is it, the affidavits say awful things about it each other and then it's, 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 a, it's a war zone it's a bit like sadly what's happening in the Arab-Israeli thing it gets to a stage where it's very hard to resolve because both parties just have contempt for each other and and, and you've got to if you, if you can stop that happening and get onto a good communication you can get through it I mean the good thing is many do resolve it themselves quite well but those who don't and, and it's the hardest thing every family court system's trying to do they can be caught in the system for a long long time like 80, 90 applications just keep coming back wanting more contact or arguing over this or that or everything at school what name they're called you know what religion every, everything becomes an issue and, and it becomes just ongoing and of course, with the uh, adversarial model that we've got, they don't necessarily have equality at arms. So you can have one of the parents or sure. one of the partners having a large amount of resources to be able to file many applications, etc. And I know, and, I know many cases like that, they can just keep coming and, and the other party has to keep responding, which is exhausting. Do you think there might be a case or an argument to suggest that that adversarial model that's used in the family court may not necessarily be fit for purpose and that maybe an inquisitorial well, model I mean, might the, be a better Well, the family court, family court was meant to be, and, and in some ways it had some inquisitorial elements, and uh, it was meant to be a, a sort of a team approach, and, and judges have power to call their own witnesses, mm. judges have power to call reports. It's, it's, it, it's not quite a full adversarial model, and lawyers are meant to act in a conciliatory way, but it sometimes gets lost, mm. you know, and we get back to the adversarial thing and we let affidavits come in, which we should never let come in, 
you know, affidavits must be about what's best for the children, not about you're a bad person, you're an awful person, you're this, you're that, you know, that that just makes things worse. It makes people so upset they can't even think about what the real issues are. So I, I think we could do more procedurally to, to reinforce the point you're making. I think you do need sometimes to question things and have some cross-examination and various things. But the judge has a lot more control in the family proceedings than they would, for example, in the criminal proceedings, where if they became too inquisitorial, you'd be an appeal. You know, the judge has got too involved. But the family court, they do get a lot more involved, and you can ask for direction. The court can ask for people to do things and that. So it's quasi-inquisitorial. Yeah. But some lawyers do want to turn it into being truly adversarial. And, and I think that's not good. I mean, the idea was specialist family laws would work in that sort of quasi-inquisitorial way, but it varies in different parts of the country. Like, I think in the bigger areas, people go to court more because there's more judges around to do it. In the country areas where judges only come once in a while, they tend to settle matters. <laughs> do you think we need more judges out in the provinces? Well, <laughs> it's catch-22 because there's more judges, there's more access to the court, there's more access to the court, people go to the court, you know, in those circumstances. Because there's less access to the court, people there are some cases where they need protection and various things, but that can be done. That's done on a, on a, on a, on a duty judges do it through the whole country with getting protection orders and various things. Yet sometimes more isn't always better because the more you have, the more people think the only way to resolve this is to go to court. Mm. I mean, what we really want to say is courts. As the holiday of the family court is the last resort. Try everything else, but that gets lost sometimes. And, and we get into a litigation mode, and if the other party starts to be that way, you, you have to respond. You know, so it only takes one lawyer to, to kick that off. The first thing lawyers ask, really, who's on the other side? You know, if you get a lawyer who's prepared to you know, settle and find ways and find creative ways to get around it, both lawyers like that, that's what I encourage my students, you get a good result. But if you get a lawyer who says, right, we're going straight to court, we're going to go on the front foot here, we're going to file for this, we're going to file for that, it's it very hard to stop after that, and, and it becomes a lot of like a runaway train if you're not careful. It doesn't happen that often, thankfully, thankfully, but when it does happen, it's awful. Mark, while I've still got you, I do want to talk about going back to this equality of arms. There is a prohibition within our profession. It's a professional prohibition that lawyers in family court matters can't act on a contingency basis. Now, yep. now the rationale behind that, I think, makes good sense if you look at child custody. I mean, you wouldn't want to have a, a no, lawyer no, no, on, no, no, no. A, on a contingency no, basis no, no, no. on child custody. It'd be a disaster, um, <laughs> potentially. Well, well it, yeah. it, it works in America because they're mainly in torts cases. So if, if you're suing someone, you get a $100 million you know, outcome, the lawyer will take 40 50% of that. Mm. And if they get nothing, they get nothing. I don't think it would work in fam- family, especially in children's cases, because you're, no. not, you're not arguing over money. No, but if the argument was over money, and I, I guess from my perspective, I, I struggle to, to see the difference, for example, where you've got two partners who are in their 50s, yeah. and the argument is over what's the division of the value of the business <laughs> yeah. versus two shareholders who are in their 50s <coughs> arguing over what's the division of the value of the business. It's exactly the same arguments. The only difference is the relationships. Whereas You can't do do contingency in New Zealand on any cases, though, can you? Well, no, you can. Uh, Yeah, but but the the (coughs) contingency can't be on a percentage basis. That's point number one. And point number two is is that whatever the contingency fee is has to be a fair and reasonable fee. So... Just as an example, I've run a contingency book for most of my working career because I see it as a great way of access to justice because I have clients who come to, to me and say, I've got this case, and sometimes the cases have, have really good merit. But they go, but I've got no money, okay, and I need to get a resolution. Otherwise, I'm walking away from a substantial entitlement. And if they're a company, of course, they can't get legal aid at all. 
or if they earn over what's a very low threshold sure, point sure. anyway, as an individual account get legal aid. So the ability to be able to say, well, look, I'll charge record my time, and if we get an outcome where you receive a money award, then I'll be paid out of the money award based on the time that I've put into it, and, and it has to be a fair and reasonable sure, fee. Sure. And, and that seems to work, for example, in a shareholder's dispute with that, without any problem. Do you see why that couldn't work in a property relationship matter? Is, is it clear they don't do it in property relationship ones? I don't know. Well, if it is done, it's against the code of conduct, because in any matters that could be before a family court can't act on but, but, contingency but, but, arrangement. But, but, but many of the property matters are decided in the High Court. That, that's true as well, but I think anything that's caught under that, that would go under the family court uh, jurisdiction. Is that right? I, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I have two. I mean, the difficulty with contingency, and I, and I can see that the example you give was a good one, but in America you get these kind of ambulance chases and people who are looking for litigation for the sake of litigation because you know you work on the base, and I know, I know this happens in America, and I'd hate to see it happen here, where you think, well, even if I lose three cases, if I win a biggie, I'm away laughing. So you, 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 there's a temptation to have a go at litigation for the sake of it, and 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 because you know you're, you're working on it, it's a bit like you know the, the clowns in the, in, in the circus. You're gonna you're gonna hit the jackpot one day. So even if you take two or three cases, and you get nothing. You get one that's good. You you're away laughing. And uh, I, I I'm I'm just not sure whether because in relationship property they do tend to settle. It may encourage a bit more having a go at litigation because that ups your your costs because it takes more time and you get a bigger slice of the of the pie. So. It's got to kind of work both ways, you know. I mean, it might be a fair and reasonable fee because it, it took a lot of time in court and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, if you didn't have that sort of question of, of being able to get a contingency fee, you might have thought it's best better to settle this. You're right. It could create that double-edged sword. And you mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast, you talked about Justice Woodhouse and, and how much foresight. Of course, he was one of the architects of the ACC legislation. Magnificent, magnificent. Yeah, and it, which which brought to a, to an end um, uh, personal injury litigation in New Zealand. It's nearly bullet to an end because there's still these cases on the periphery that they still argue over and there's still a kind of a slight unfairness where people get a, a malignancy which, which isn't quite an injury, you know, and so they fall outside it. And, and ACC itself have hired lots of experts to make it tougher to get across the threshold. I think Owen Woodhouse would be disappointed at some of the way it's been handled, but I think the principle's magnificent, magnificent. It's social justice at its best. We all contribute to these things and accidents will happen and why should one person have to pay a windfall for an accident? Because often they're, they're just, you know, I mean, intentional things are, are a bit different, but, but accidents happen all the time and, and it's it's a good way of looking at it. Well, it's and Kiwis it's caring for Kiwis, isn't and, it? And people yeah. thought, oh, well, this, this is a terrible thing because uh, people won't care. In America, they say, well, it's only because they're being sued they behave. But there's no evidence that doctors, for example, here or professional people who get things wrong, who are sued, are any worse than any country where they can be sued. I mean, it, it, the professionals do a good job because if you have to, only can do a do good job because someone's holding a gun to your head, you may be sued. You shouldn't be in the profession. I mean, you, you don't get out of bed in the morning and think, I only do a good job. You do a good job because that's what your DNA says. That's my calling. That's my contribution to society. And sometimes you might stuff it up, but you don't get up. You don't have that hanging over your head. It's just, it's a myth to see that. So I, I, Owen Woodhouse was just a magnificent uh, judge and, and and a great. So and the good thing about him is, you know, I read about him. I got to know a little bit about. Him. I met him a couple of times. A wonderful man. He was in the war, and he said he when you've been in the war, you don't quibble over small things. A lot of the things we quibble over in courts are small matters. Said you get on with it, and I think he sees the bigger picture. It gives it a bit more context. It does, yeah. You see things in context, whereas people, you know, and I think that's 
do more Owen Woodhouse's in our, in our system. I mean, a lot of people say the judiciary, but there's been some, we've had some fine judges. He's one of our very best. Well, hopefully there's a, there's, there's a few more that you're, uh, you're undoubtedly training and coming well, through the so. ranks. Well, because there, there, are, there are. I think there are. I mean, no system is perfect, and I think everyone has to accept that any legal system is going to have uh, its glitches. Um, it wouldn't be human. I mean, you know, there's always a fear the law will be replaced by computers, and... Uh, Computers have no compassion. <laughs> you can't build <laughs> compassion into them. And I think that's the one thing that the human beings do have. And I think uh, hopefully most judges, or hopefully all judges, would have some aspect of that so they can see that, that bigger picture. But I know people, particularly the family court, does get attacked a lot by different interest groups. And, and I can understand that. Parties go away pretty disappointed if they don't get what they want. If you, if you don't get the contact with the children that you want, you say there's something wrong with the system, or if someone feels they're not getting the protection they deserve and the other party's getting more than they should have because they're not a, they're a danger. So both sides really have you know, very strong positions to put in. It's not, it's not easy for judges to work out where the balance balance is, but I think I think at the end of the day, you know, if, if every client was satisfied, we wouldn't be getting it right. So it's an element of sometimes when both are dissatisfied, you've got it right because they didn't both quite get what they want because both were probably taking extreme positions and the judge ends up somewhere in the middle, which can be all right. Not in every case. Sometimes the extreme position has to to be is the one that counts because sometimes there is violence going on and and, and, and do, often too often there is and it may be the only thing to do is, is say look you're going to have to have very limited contact which is very sad but it does happen it does happen in our in our system and I think that sometimes we underestimate that and we should always get that as right as we can because coming back to your fundamental point about children getting that wrong is is, is, is disastrous for children so it's, it's it's a tough job but it's good to be critical I think we need to be critical I mean no one's above criticism and uh, Judges and lawyers will always be critiqued because we're, we're a public job and, and the critique is, needs to be listened to and we need to keep always adjusting and trying to do better. Thank you, Mark. Professor Mark Hennigan, I hope you'll continue during your role of, of <laughs> being critical over the issues that need to be uh, analysed and critiqued on. Thank you very much for your time on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thank you again. I'm very proud of you, Chris, of what you've achieved. Well done. Thank you. tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under. (laughs) 